Hiya! Welcome to Sniper's Rest. Sniper's Rest is the last best rest stop in the here and there. The place between where you're coming from and where you're going. I am Sniper Shadow and I reside here in Sniper's Rest as a guide and custodian to those who pass through here. I visit the worlds within the multiverse often, but I am always here to guide and care for the travellers such as yourself that pass through the here and there. Welcome my friend. My goodness, coming out of the heat. Here, have some cool water. We've had a severe heat wave in the here and there this week. It's like walking through syrup out there. Please take a rest here before continuing your journey. We'll be doing something a little different. I'll be reading a series of short stories that I've always wanted to read by H.B. Lovecraft. This first one is called The Call of Cthulhu. It was written in 1926 and published in the pulp magazine Weird Tales in 1928 and entered the public domain in 2007. Let's get a little spooky. Chapter 1 The Horror in Clay The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They have hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by a bland optimism. But it is not far from them that there came a single glimpse of forbidden eons which chills me when I think of it and maddens me when I dream of it. That glimpse, like all dreaded glimpses of truth, flashed out from an accidental piecing together of separated things. In this case, an old newspaper item and the notes of a dead professor. I hope that no one else will accomplish this piecing out. Certainly, if I live, I shall never knowingly supply a link in so hideous a chain. I think that the professor too intended to keep silent regarding the part he knew, and that he would have destroyed his notes had not sudden death seized him. My knowledge of the thing began in the winter of 1926-27, with the death of my grand-uncle, George Gamel Engel, Professor Emetrius of Somatic Languages at Brown University, Province, Rhode Island. Professor Engel was widely known as an authority on ancient inscriptions and had frequently been resorted to by the heads of prominent museums so that in his passing at the age of 92 may be recalled by many. Locally, interest was intensified by the obscurity of the cause of death. The professor had been stricken whilst returning from the Newport boat, falling suddenly, as witnesses said, after having been jostled by a nautical-looking fellow who had come from one of the queer dark courts on the precipitous hillside, which formed a shortcut from the waterfront to the deceased's home in William Street. Physicians were unable to find any visible disorder, but concluded after perplexed debate that some obscure lesion of the heart, induced by the brisk ascent of so steep a hill by so elderly a man, was responsible for the end. 
at the time, I saw no reason to dissent from this dictum. But latterly, I am inclined to wonder, and more than wonder. As my granduncle's heir and executor, for he died a childless widower, I was expected to go over his papers with some thoroughness, and for that purpose moved his entire set of files and boxes to my quarters in Boston. Much of the material which I correlated will later be published by the American Archaeological Society, but there was one box which I found exceedingly puzzling and which I felt much adverse from showing to other eyes. It had been locked, and I did not find a key till it occurred to me to examine the personal ring which the professor carried always in his pocket. Then, indeed, I succeeded in opening it, but when I did so seemed to only to be confronted by a greater and more closely locked barrier. For what could be the meaning of the queer clay bas-relief? and the disjointed jottings and ramblings and cuttings which I found. Had my uncle in his latter years become credulous of the most superficial impostors? I resolved to search out the eccentric sculptor responsible for this apparent disturbance of an old man's peace of mind. The bas-relief was a rough rectangle less than an inch thick and about five by six inches in area obviously of modern origins. Its design, however, were far from modern in atmosphere and suggestion, for although the vagaries of cubism and futurism are many and wild, they do not often reproduce that cryptic regularity which lurks in prehistoric writing, and writing of some kind the bulk of these designs seem to certainly be. Though my memory, despite much familiarity with the papers and the collection of my uncle, failed in any way to identify this particular species, or even hint at the remotest affiliations. Above these apparent hieroglyphics was a figure of evidently pictorial intent, though its impression impressionistic execution forbade a very clear idea of its nature. It seemed to be a sort of monster or symbol representing a monster, of a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. If I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature, I shall not be unfaithful to the script of the thing. A pulpy, tentacled head summoned a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings but it was the general outline of the whole which made it most shockingly frightening. Behind the figure was a vague suggestion of a cyclopean architectural background. The writing accompanying this oddity was, aside from a stack of press cuttings in Professor Angle's most recent hand, and made no pretense to literary style. What seemed to be the main document was headed Cthulhu Cult, in characters painstakingly printed to avoid the erroneous reading of the words so unheard of. This manuscript was divided into two sections, the first of which was headed 1925, Dream and Dreamwork of H.A. Wilcox, 7 Thomas Street, Province R.I., and the second, Narrative of Inspector John R. Ligrassi, 121 Beanville Street, New Orleans, L.A., at 1908 A.A.S. 
MTG notes on the same and Professor Webb's act. The other manuscript papers were all brief notes, some of them of the queer dreams of different persons, some of them citations from theosophical books and magazines, notably W. Scott Eliot's Atlantis and the Lost Lemura, and the rest of comments on long-surviving secret societies and hidden cults, with references to passages such as mythological and anthropological source books as Fraser's Golden Bow and Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe. The cuttings largely allured to array mental illnesses and outbreaks of group folly or mania in the spring of 1925. The first half of the principal manuscript told a very peculiar tale. It appears that on March 1, 1925, a thin, dark young man of neurotic and excited aspect had called upon Professor Engel's bearing in a singular clay bas-relief, which was then exceedingly damp and fresh. His card bore the name of Henry Anthony Wilcox, and my uncle had recognized him as the youngest son of an excellent family slightly known to him, who had latterly been studying the sculpture at Rhode Island School of Design and living alone at the Fleur de Lis building near that institution. Wilcox was a precious youth of known genius, but great eccentricity and had from childhood excited attention through the strange stories and odd dreams he was in the habit of relating. He called himself psychically hypersensitive, but the staid folk of the ancient commercial city dismissed him as merely queer. Never mingling much with his kind, he had dropped gradually from social visibility and was now known only to a small group of estates in, from other towns. Even the province art club, anxious to preserve its conservatism, had found him quite hopeless. On the occasion of the visit, ran the professor's manuscript, the sculpture abruptly asked for the benefit of his host's archaeological knowledge in identifying the hieroglyphics on the bas-relief. He spoke in a dreamy, stilted manner, which suggested pose and alienated sympathy, and my uncle showed some sharpness in replying, for the conspicuous freshness of the tablet implied kinship with anything but archaeology. Young Wilcox rejoinder, which impressed my uncle enough to make him recall and record it verbatim, was of a fantastically poetic cast which must have typified his whole conversation, and which I have since found highly characteristic of him. He said, It is new, indeed. For I made it last night in a dream of strange cities, and dreams are older than brooding Tyre, or the contemplative Sphinx, or the garden-gilded Babylon. This verbal jumble was the key to the recollection which excited and disturbed Professor Engel. He questioned the sculpture with scientific minuteness, and studied, with almost frantic intensity, the bas-relief on which the youth had found himself working, chilled and clad in only his night-clothes, when waking had stolen bewilderingly over him. My uncle blamed his old age, Wilcox afterwards said, for his slowness in recognising both hieroglyphics and pictorial design. Many of his questions seemed highly out of place to his visitor, 
especially those which tried to connect the latter with strange cults or societies. And Wilcox could not understand the repeated promises of silence which he was offered in exchange for an admission of a membership in some widespread mystical or paganly religious body. When Professor Angle became convinced that the sculpture was indeed ignorant of any cult or system of cryptic lore, he besieged his visitor with demands for future reports of dreams. This bore regular fruit, for after the first interview, the manuscript records daily calls of the young man during which he related startling fragments of nocturnal imagery whose burden was always some terrible cyclopean vista of dark and dripping stone, with a subterranean voice or intelligence shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense impacts undescribable save as gibberish. The two sounds most frequently repeated are those rendered by the letters Cthulhu and Rael. On March 23rd, the manuscript continued. Wilcox failed to appear, and inquiries in, at his quarters revealed that he had been stricken with an obscure sort of fever and taken to the home of his family in Waterman Street. He had cried out in the night, arousing several other artists in the building, and had manifested since then only alternations of unconsciousness and delirium. My uncle at once telephoned the family, and from that time forward kept a close watch of the case, calling often at the Thayer Street office of Dr. Toby, whom he learned to be in charge. The youth's febrile mind apparently was dwelling on strange things, and the doctor shuddered now and then as he spoke of them. They included not only a repetition of what he had formerly dreamed, but touched wildly on a gigantic thing, miles high, which walked or lumbered about. He had no time to fully describe this object, but occasional frantic words, as repeated by Dr. Toby, convinced the professor that it must be identical with the nameless monstrosity he had sought to depict in his dream sculpture. Reference to this object, the doctor added, was invariably a prelude to the young man's subsidence into lethargy. His temperature, oddly enough, was not greatly above normal, but the whole condition was otherwise such as to suggest true fever rather than mental disorder. On April 2nd, at about 3pm, every trace of Wilcox's malady suddenly ceased. He sat upright in bed, astonished to find himself at home and completely ignorant of what had happened in dream or reality since the night of March 22nd. Pronounced well by his physician, he returned to his quarters in three days, but to Professor Angel he was of no further assistance. All traces of the strange dreaming had vanished with his recovery, and my uncle kept no record of his night thoughts after a week of pointless and irrelevant accounts of thoroughly usual visions. Here, the first part of the manuscript ended, but references to certain of the scattered notes gave me much material for thought. So much, in fact, that the only ingrained scepticism then forming my philosophy can account for my continued distrust of the artist. The notes in question were those of descriptive of dreams of various persons covering the same period as that in which young Wilcox had his strange visitations. My uncle, it seems, had quickly instituted a prodigiously far-flung body of inquiries amongst nearly all the friends whom he could question without impertinence for nightly reports of their dreams and the dates of any notable visions for some time past. The reception of his request seemed to have been varied, 
but he must, at the very least, have received more responses than any ordinary man could have handled without a secretary. This original correspondence was not preserved, but his notes formed a thoroughly and real significant digest. Average people in society and business, New England's traditional salt of the earth, gave an almost complete negative result, though scattered cases of uneasy but formless nocturnal impressions appear here and there. Always between March 23rd and April 2nd, the period of young Wilcox's delirium. Scientific men were a little more affected, though four cases of vague description suggest fugitive glimpse of strange landscapes and in one case there is mentioned of a dreaded something abnormal. It was from the artists and poets that the pertinent answers came, and I know that panic would have broken loose had they been able to compare notes. As it was, lacking their original letters, I half suspected the compiler of having asked leading questions, or of having edited the correspondence in corrobor corroboration of what he had latently resolved to see. That is why I continued to feel that Wilcox, somehow cognizant of the old data which my uncle had possessed, had been imposing on the veteran scientist. These responses from Estites told a disturbing tale. From February 28th to April 2nd, a large proportion of them had dreamed very bizarre things, the intensity of the dreams being immeasurably the stronger during the period of the sculptor's delirium. Over a fourth of those who reported anything reported scenes and half-sounds not unlike those which Wilcox had described but some of the dreamers confessed acute fear of the gigantic, nameless thing visible towards the last. One case which notes describe with emphasis was very sad. The subject, a widely known architect with leanings towards theosophy and occultism, went violently insane on the date of young Wilcox's seizure and expired several months later after incessant screamings to be saved from some escaped denizen of hell. Had my uncle referred to these cases by name instead of merely by number, I should have attempted to put some corroboration and personal investigation, but as it was, I succeeded in only tracing a few. All of these, however, bore out the notes in full. I have often wondered if all the objects of the professor's questionings felt as puzzled as did this fraction. It is well that no explanation shall ever reach them. The press cuttings, I have intimated, touched on a case of panic mania and eccentricity during the given period. Professor Angel must have employed a cutting bureau, for the number of extracts was tremendous, and the sources scattered throughout the globe. Here was a nocturnal suicide in London, where a lone sleeper had leapt from a window after a shocking cry. Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America, where the fanatic deduces a dire future from visions he has seen. A dispatch from California describes a theosophist colony as donning white robes en masse for some glorious fulfillment which never arrives, whilst items from India speak guardily of serious native unrest towards the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti, 
and African outposts report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome about this time, and New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines on the night of March 22-23. The west of Ireland, too, is filled with wild rumour and legendary, and a fantastic painter named Ardois Bernot hangs a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon of 1926. And so numerous are recorded troubles in insane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange paralysiums and drawings of mystified conclusions. A weird bunch of cuttings all told and I can at this day scarcely envisage the callous rationalism with which I set them aside. But I was then convinced that young Wilcox had known of the older matters mentioned by the professor. Chapter 2. The Tale of Inspector Lagrassi The older matters which had made the sculptor's dream and the bas-relief so significant to my uncle formed the subject of the second half of his long manuscript. Once before it appeared, Professor Angel had seen the hellish outlines of this nameless monstrosity, puzzled over the unknown hieroglyphics, and heard the ominous syllables which can be rendered only as Cthulhu. And all this in so stirring and horrible a connection that it is small wonder he pursued young Wilcock with queries and demands for data. This earlier experience had come in 1908, 17 years before, when the American Archaeological Society held its annual meetings in St. Louis, Professor Angle, has befitted as one of his authority and attainments, had had a prominent part in the deliberations, was one of the first to be approached by several outsiders who took advantage of the convocation to offer questions for correct answering and problems for expert solution. The chief of these outsiders, and in a short time the focus of interest for the entire meeting, was a commonplace-looking middle-aged man who had travelled all the way from New Orleans for certain special information unobtainable from any local source. His name was John Raymond Lagrassi, and he was, by profession, an inspector of police. With him, he bore the subject of his visit, a grotesque, repulsive, and apparently very ancient stone statue, whose origin he was at a loss to determine. It must not be fancied that Inspector Lagrassi had the least interest in archaeology. On the contrary, his wish for enlightenment was prompted by a purely professional consideration. The statuette, idol, fetish, or whatever it was, had been captured some months before in the wooded swamps of South New Orleans during a raid on the supposed voodoo meeting, or so singular and hideous were the rites connected with it that the police could not but realise that they had stumbled on a dark cult totally unknown to them, and infinitely more diabolic than even the darkest of African voodoo circles. Of its origin, apart from the erratic and unbelievable tales extorted from the captured members, it absolutely nothing was to be discovered, hence the anxiety of the police for any antiquian law which might help them place the frightful symbol and through it track down the cult to its foundation's head. 
Inspector Lagrassi was scarcely prepared for the sensation which his offering created. One sight of the thing had been enough to throw the assembled men of science into a state of tense excitement, and they lost no time in crowding around him to gaze at the diminutive figure, whose utter strangeness and air of genuine abysmal antiquity hinted so potently at unopened and archaic vistas. No recognized school of sculpture had animated this terrible object, and yet centuries, even thousands of years, seemed recorded in its dim and greenish surface of unplaceable stone. The figure, which was finally passed slowly from man to man for a close and careful study, was between seven and eight inches in height, and of exquisitely artistic workmanship. It represented a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on its hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. This thing, which seemed to instinct with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of somewhat bloated copulence, and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with an indecipherable characters. The tip of the wings touched the back edge of the block, and seat occupied the centre, whilst the long curved claws of the doubled up, crouching hind legs gripping the front edge and extended to the quarter of the way down to the bottom of the pedestal. The cephalopod head was bent forwards so that the ends of the facial feelers brushed the backs of the huge forepaws which clasped the croucher's elevated knees. The aspect of the whole was abnormally lifelike and the more subtle fearful because its source was so totally unknown. Its vast, awesome, and incalculable age was unmistakable, yet not one link did it show with any known type of art belonging to civilization, civilization's youth, or indeed any other time. Totally separate and apart from its very material was a mystery for the soapy greenish-black stone with its golden or iridescent flecks and striations resembled nothing familiar to ge geology or mineralogy. The characters along the base were equally as baffling, and no member present, despite a representation of half the world's expert in learning in this field, could form the least notion of even their remotest linguistic kinship. They, like the subject and material, belonged to something horribly remote and distinct from mankind as we know it, something frightfully suggestive of old and unhallowed cycles of life in which our world and our conceptions have no part. And yet, as the members, several, shook their head and confessed defeat at the inspector's problem, there was one man in that gathering who suspected a touch of bizarre familiarity from the monstrous shape in the writings, and who presently told with some diffidence the odd trifle he knew. This person was the late William Channing Webb, professor of anthropology in Princeton University, and an explorer of no slight note. Professor Webb had been engaged in 48 years before in a tour of Greenland and Iceland in search of some runic inscriptions which he failed to unearth, and whilst high up in the West Greenland coast he had encountered a singular tribe or cult of degenerate Eskimos whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. It was a faith of which other Eskimos knew little and which they mentioned only with shudders, saying it had come down from horribly ancient eons before the world was even made. 
besides nameless rites and human sacrifices, there were certain queer hereditary rituals addressed to a supreme elder devil, or Tolkanask. And of this, the professor had taken a careful phonetic copy from an aged Anglecock, or priest wizard, expressing the sounds in Roman letters as best he knew how. But just now the prime significant was the fetish which this cult had cherished and around which they danced when the aurora leapt high over the ice cliffs. It was, the professor stated, a very crude bas-relief of stone comprising of a hideous picture and some cryptic writing. And as far as he could tell, it was a rough parallel in all essential features of the bestial thing now lying before the meeting. These data, received with suspension astonishment by the assembled members, proved doubly exciting to in Inspector Lagrassi, and he began to at once ply this informant with questions. Having noted and copied an oral ritual among swamp cult worshippers his men had arrested, he besought the professor to remember as best he might the syllables taken down amongst the Dibolist Eskimos. There then followed an exhaustive comparison of details, and a moment of really awed silence when both detective and scientist agreed on the virtual identity of the phrase common to two hellish rituals so many worlds of distance apart. What, in substance, both the Eskimo wizards and the Louisiana swamp priests had chanted in their kindred idols was something very like this, the world divisions being guessed at from traditional breaks, the phrase chanted aloud, Fig nulawi, Megalana guaflaka, Kathula rael, Waga nagal fatkan. Lagrassi had one point in advance of Professor Webb, for several among his mongrel prisoners had repeated to him what older celebrants had told him the words meant. This text as given, ran something like this. In this house, at Rael, dead Cthulhu waits, dreaming. And now in response to a general urgent demand, Inspector Lagrassi related as fully possible his experience with the swamp worshippers, telling a story to which I could see my uncle attach profound significance. It savoured of the wildest dreams of mythmakers and theophists, and disclosed an astonishing degree of cosmic imagination among such pariahs as might be least expected to possess it. On November 1st, 1907, there had come to New Orleans police a frantic summons from the swamp and lagoon country to the south. The squatters there, mostly primitive but good-natured descendants of Lafitte's men, were in the grip of stark terror from an unknown thing that had stolen upon them in the night. It was voodoo, apparently, but voodoo a more terrible sort than they had ever known. And some of their women and children had disappeared since the malevolent tom-tom had begun its incessant beating far within the black-haunted woods where no dweller ever ventured. There were insane shouts and harrowing screams, soul-chilling chants and dancing devil flames, and the frightened messenger added, people could stand it no more. So a body of 20 police filling two carriages and an automobile had set out in the late afternoon with a shivering squatter as a guide. 
At the end of the possible road they alighted, and for miles splashed on in silence through the terrible cypress woods where day never came. Ugly roots and malignant hanging nooses of Spanish moss beset them, and now and then a pile of dank stones or fragments of rotting walls intensified by hints of morbid habitation, a depression which every malformed tree and every fungalous islet combined to create. At the length of the squatter's settlement, a miserable huddle of huts hove in sight, and hysterical dwellers ran out to cluster around the group of bobbing lanterns. The muffled beat of the tom-toms was now faintly audible far, far ahead, and the curdling shrieks came at infrequent intervals when the wind shifted. A reddish glare, too, seemed to filter through the pale undergrowth beyond endless avenues of the black forest night. Reluctant even to be left alone again, each of the cowed squatters refused point-blank to advance another inch towards the scene of unholy worship. So Inspector Lagrassi and his 19 colleagues plunged on unguided into the black arcades of horror that none of them had ever trod before. The region now entered by the police was one traditionally of evil repute, substantially unknown and untraversed by the white man. There were legends of a hidden lake unglimpsed by mortal sight, in which dwelt a huge formless white polypus thing with luminous eyes and squatters whispered that bat-winged devils flew up out of caverns in the earth to worship it at night. They said it had been there before D'Iberville, before La Salle, before the Indians, before even the wholesome beasts and birds of the woods. It was nightmare itself and to see it was to die. But it made men dream and so they knew enough to keep away. The present voodoo orgy was indeed on the merest fringe of this abhorred area, but that location was bad enough, hence the very place of the worship that had terrified the squatters more than the shouting sounds and incidents. Only poetry or madness could do justice to the noises heard by Lagrassi's men as they ploughed on through the black morass towards the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. There are vocal qualities peculiar to men, and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts, and it is terrible to hear the one when the source should yield the other. Animal fury and orgastic license here whipped themselves into demonic heights by howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through the nighted woods like pestilent tempests from the gulfs of hell and now and then less organized elations would cease, and from what seemed a well-drilled chorus of hoarse voices would rise in a sing-song chant that hideous phrase or ritual. Then, the men, having reached the spot where the trees were thinner, came suddenly into the sight of the spectacle itself. Four of them reeled, one fainted, and two were shaken into a frantic cry which had the mad cacophony of the orgy fortunately deadened. Lagrassi dashed swamp water on the face of the fainting man, and all stood trembling and nearly hypnotized with horror. In a natural glade of the swamp stood a grassy island, perhaps an acre's extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality than any but a Syme or an Angolia could paint. 
void of clothing this hybrid spawn were braying and bellowing and writhing in a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire in the center of which revealed by the occasional rifts in the curtains of flame stood a great granite monolith some eight feet in height on top of which in Corgurus, and in its diminutiveness rested the noxious cavern statuette from a wide circle of ten scaffolds set up at regular intervals with the flame girth monolith as a center hung head downwards the oddly marred bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared it was inside this circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right in an endless barnacle between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire it may have only been imagination and it may have only been echoes which induced one of the men an excitable spaniard to fancy he heard antiphonal responses to the ritual from some far and unilluminated spot deeper within the woods of ancient legendary and horror this man joseph de gavalis i met later and questioned and he proved to be distractingly imaginative he went so far as to hint the faint beatings of great wings and the glimpse of shining eyes and a mountainous white bulk beyond the remotest trees but i suppose he had been hearing too much narrative superstition actually the horrified pause of men was of comparatively brief duration duty came first and although there must have been nearly a hundred mongrel celebrants in the throng the police relied on their firearms and plunged determinedly into the nauseous route for five minutes the resultant din and chaos was beyond description wild blows were struck shots were fired and escapes were made but in the end Lagrassi was able to count some 47 sullen prisoners whom he forced to dress in haste and fall into line between two rows of policemen five worshippers lay dead two severely wounded were carried away on improvised stretchers by their fellow prisoners the image on the monolith of course was carefully removed and carried back by Lagrassi. examined at headquarters after the trip of intense strain and weariness the prisoners all proved to be men of very low and mentally apparent type before many questions were asked it became manifest that something far deeper and older than voodoo was involved degraded and ignorant as they were the creatures held with surprising consistency to the central idea of their loathsome faith they worshipped so they said the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came to the young world out of the sky those old ones were gone now inside the earth and under the sea but their dead bodies had told their secrets in dreams to the first man who formed a cult which had never died this was that cult and the prisoners said it had always existed and always would exist hidden in the distant wastes and dark places all over the world until the time where the great priest cthulhu from his dark house in the mighty city of rael under the waters should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway some day he would call when the stars were ready and the secret cult would be always be waiting to liberate him meanwhile no more must be told there was a secret which even torture could not extract mankind was absolutely not alone among the conscious things of earth 
for shapes came out of the dark to visit the faithful few. But these were not the old great ones. No man had ever seen the old ones. The carved idol was the great Cthulhu, but none might ever say whether or not they were precisely like him. No one could read the old writing now, but things were told by word of mouth. The chanted ritual was not secret. That was never spoken aloud, only whispers, and the chant meant only this. In this house, at the Rael, dead Cthulhu waits, dreaming. Only two of the prisoners were found sane enough to be hanged, and the rest were committed to various institutions. All denied a part in the ritual murders, and averred that killing had been done by the black-winged ones which had come to them from their immemorial meeting place in the haunted woods. But those of mysterious allies no coherent account could ever be gained. What the police did extract came mainly from an immensely aged man named Castro, who claimed to have sailed to strange ports and talked with undying leaders of the cult in the mountains of China. Old Castro remembered bits of hideous legend that paled the speculations of the Theophists, and man made man and the world seem recent and transient indeed. There had been eons where other things ruled the earth, and they had great cities. Remains of them, he said, the deathless Chinaman had told him, were still to be found in the Cyclopean stones on the islands of the Pacific. They had all died vast epochs of time before man came, but there were arts which could revive them when the stars had come round again to the right positions in the cycle of eternity. They had indeed come themselves from the stars and brought their images with them. The great old ones, Castro continued, were not composed altogether of flesh and blood. They had shape. For did not this star-fashioned image prove it? But the shape was not made of matter. When the stars were right, they could plunge from the world to the world through the sky. But when the stars were wrong, they could not live. But although they no longer lived, they would never really die. They all lay in stone houses in their great city of Rael, preserved by the spell of the mighty Cthulhu, for a glorious resurrection when the stars and the earth might once again be ready for them. But at that time some force from outside must serve to liberate their bodies. The spell that preserved them intact likewise presented, prevented them from making the initial move, and they could only lie awake in the dark and think whilst uncounted millions of years rolled by. They knew all that was occurring in the universe, for their mode of speech was transmitted through thought. Even now they talked in their tombs. When their infinies of chaos, the man first came, the great old ones spoke to the sensitive among them by moulding their dreams, and for only thus their language could reach the fleshy minds of the mammals. Then, whispered Castro, those first men formed the cult around small idols which the great ones showed them, idols brought in from dim eras from the dark stars. That cult would never die till the stars came right again, 
and the secret priests would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of the earth. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind will have become as the old great ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. The old liberated ones would teach them the new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves and the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rites, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and the shadow forth the prophecy of their return. In the elder time chosen, men had talked with the entombed old ones in dreams, but then something had happened. The great stone city, Rael, with its monoliths and sepulchres, had sunk beneath the waves, and the deep waters, full of one's primal mystery, through one does not even pass, had cut off the spectral intercourse. But memory never died, and high priests said that the city would rise again when the stars were bright. Then came out of the earth the black spirits of earth, mouldy and shadowy, and filled with dim rumours picked up in caverns beneath forgotten sea bottoms. But of them old Castro dared not speak much. He cut himself off horridly, and no amount of persuasion or subtlety could elicit more in this direction. The size of the old ones, too, he curiously declined to mention. Of the cult, he said that he thought the centre lay amid the pathless, de pathless deserts of the Arabia, where Irem, the city of pillars, dreams hidden and untouched. It was not allied to the Europe witch cult, and virtually unknown beyond its members. No book had ever really hinted of it, though the deathless Chinaman said that there once was double meaning of Necromon, of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Razad which had initiated the mighty reed as they chose, especially the much-discussed copulate. That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons, even death may die. Lagrassi, deeply impressed and not a little bewildered, had inquired in vain concerning the historic affiliations of the cult. Castro apparently had told the truth when he said that it was wholly secret. The authorities at Tulane University could shed no light upon either cult nor image. And now the detective had come to the highest authorities in the country and met with no more than the Greenland tale of Professor Webb. The feverish interest aroused at the meeting by Lagrassi's tale, corroborated as it was by the statuette, is echoed in the subsequent correspondence of those who attended, although scant mentions occurs of the formal publication of the society. Caution is the first care of those accustomed to face occasional salantry and imposture. Lagrassi for some time lent the image to Professor Webb, but at the latter's death it was returned to him and remains in his possession, where I viewed it not long ago. It truly is a terrible thing, and unmistakably akin to the dream sculpture of young Wilcox. That my uncle was excited by the tale of the sculptor, I did not wonder, 
for what thoughts must arise upon hearing after a knowledge of what Lagrassi had learned of the cult, of a sensitive young man who had dreamed not only of the figure and the exact hieroglyphs of the swamp-found image and the Greenland devil tablet, but had come in his dreams upon at least three of the precise words of the formula uttered like by the Eskimo Diabolists and the mongrel Louisianians. Professor Angle's instant start on an investigation of the utmost thoroughness was imminently natural, though privately I suspected young Wilcox of having heard the cult in some indirect way, and having invented a series of dreams to heighten and continue the mystery at my uncle's expense. The dream narratives and cuttings collected from the professor were, of course, strong corroboration, but the rationalism of my mind and the extravagance of the whole subject led me to adopt what I thought the most sensible conclusions. So after thoroughly studying the manuscript again and correlating with the theosophical and anthropological notes of the cult narrative of Lagrassi, I made a trip to Providence to see the sculptor and give him the rebuke I thought proper for so boldly imposing, imposing upon a learned and aged man. Wilcox still lived alone in the fleur-de-lis building in Thomas Street, a hideous Victorian imitation of 17th century Breton architecture which flaunts the stuccoed front amidst a lovely colonial houses on the ancient hill and under the very shadow of the finest Gregorian steeple in America I found him at work in his rooms and at once conceded from the specimens scattered about that his genius is indeed profound and authentic he will I believe be heard from time to time as one of the great decadents for he crystallized in clay and one day mirror in marble those nightmares and fantasies which Arthur Macken evokes in prose and Clark Aston Smith makes visible in verse and in painting. Dark, frail, and somewhat unkept in aspect, he turned languidly at my knock and asked my business without rising. When I told him who I was, he displayed some interest, for my uncle had excited his curiosity in probing his strange dreams, yet had never explained the reason for the study. I did not enlarge his knowledge in this regard, but sought some subtlety to draw him out. In a short time I became convinced of his absolute sincerity, for he spoke of the dreams in a manner none could mistake. They, and their subconscious residuum, had influenced his art profoundly, and he showed me a morbid statue whose contours almost made me shake with the potency of its black suggestion. He could not recall having seen the original of this thing except in his own dream bas-relief but the outlines had formed themselves insensibly under his hands. It was, no doubt, the giant shape he had raved on of in delirium. That he really knew nothing of the hidden cult, save from what my uncle's relentless catechism had let fall, he soon made clear, and I again strove to think of some way in which he could possibly have received the weird impressions. He talked of his dream in a strangely poetic fashion, and making me see with terrible vividness the damp cyclopean city of slimy green stone, whose geometry, he oddly said, was all wrong. And here, with frightened expectancy, the ceaseless half-mental calling from underground. words had formed part of the dreaded ritual 
which told of dead Cthulhu's dream vigil in his stone vault at Rael. And I felt deeply moved despite my rational beliefs. Wilcock, I was sure, had heard of the cult in some casual way and had soon forgotten it amidst the mats of e equally weird readings and imaginings. Later, by virtue of his sheer impressiveness, it had found subconscious expression in dreams, in the bas-relief, and in the terrible statue I now beheld. So that his imposture upon my uncle had been a very innocent one. The youth was of a type, at once slightly affected and slightly ill-mannered, which I could never like, but was willing enough to admit now both his genius and his honesty. I took leave of him amicably, and wish him all the success in his talented promise. The matter of the cult still remained to fascinate me, and at times I had visions of personal fame from researchers into its origins and connections. I visited New Orleans, talked with Lagrassi and others of that old-time raiding party, saw the frightful image, and even questioned such of the mongrel prisoners that still survived. Old Castro, unfortunately, had been dead for some years. What I now heard so graphically, at first hand, though it was really no more than a detailed confirmation of what my uncle had written, excited me afresh, for I felt sure that I was on the track of a very real, very secret, and very ancient religion whose discovery would make me an anthropologist of note. My attitude was still one of absolute materialism, as I still wish it were and I discounted with almost inexplicable perversity the coincidence of the dream notes and the odd cuttings collected by Professor Engel. One thing which I began to suspect, and which I now fear I know, is that my uncle's death was far from natural. He fell on a narrow hill street leading up from an ancient waterfront swarming with foreign folk, after a careless push from a foreign sailor. I did not forget the marine pursuits of the cult members in Louisiana, and would not be surprised to learn of secret methods and poison needles as ruthless as anciently known as the cryptic rites and beliefs. Lagrassi and his men, it is true, have been let alone, but in Norway a certain seaman who saw all things is dead. Might not the deeper inquiries of my uncle after encountering the sculptor's data have come to sinister ears? I think Professor Angle died because he knew too much, or because he was likely to learn too much. Whether I shall go as he did remains to be seen, for I have learned much now. Chapter 3 The Madness from the Sea If heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total effacing of the result of mere chance which fixed my eye on a certain stray piece of shelf paper. It was nothing on which I could naturally have stumbled on in the course of my daily round, for it was an old number of an Australian journal, Sydney Bulletin, from April 18, 1925. It had escaped even the cutting bureau, which had at the time of its issuance been avidly collecting material for my uncle's research. I had largely given over my inquiries into what Professor Angel called the Cthulhu cult, and was visiting a learned friend of Patterson, New Jersey, the curator of a local museum and a mineralogist of note, examining one day the reserved specimens roughly set on the storage shelves in a rear room of the museum, my eye was caught by an odd picture in one of the old papers spread beneath the stones. It was the Sydney Bulletin I have mentioned. 
for my friend has a wide affiliation in all conceivable foreign parts, and the picture was of a half-tone cut of a hideous stone image almost identical with that of the grassy had found in the swamp. Eagerly clearing the sheet of its precious contents, I scanned the item in detail and was disappointed to find it of only moderate length. What it suggested, however, was of pretentious significance to my flagging quest, and I carefully tore it out for immediate action. It read as follows. Mystery derelict found at sea. Vigilant arise with helpless armed New Zealand yacht in tow. One survivor and dead man found aboard. Tale of desperate battle and deaths at sea. Rescued seaman refuses particulars of strange experience. Odd idol found in his possession. Inquiry to follow. The Morrison Coast freighter vigilant, bound for Valparaiso, arrived this morning at its wharf in Darling Harbour, having in tow the battled and disabled but heavily armed steam yacht Alert from Dundeon, New Zealand, which was sighted on April 12th in the southern latitude 34 degrees 21 minutes with a western longitude of 152 degrees and 17 minutes, with one living and one dead man aboard. Vigilant left Valparaiso March 25th and on April 2nd was driven considerably south of her course by exceptionally heavy storms and monster waves. On April 12th the derelict was sighted and though apparently deserted was found upon boarding to contain one survivor in half delirious condition and one man who had evidently been dead for more than a week. Living man was clutching a horrible stone idol of unknown origin about a foot in height, regarding whose nature authorities at Sydney University, the Royal Society, and the museum in College Street all profess complete bafflement, and which the survivor says he found in the cabin of the yacht, in a small carved shrine of common pattern. This man, after recovering his senses, told an exceedingly strange story of piracy and slaughter. He is Gustav Johansson, a Norwegian of some intelligence, and has been second mate to the two-masted schooner Emma of Auckland, which sailed for Calico February 20th, with a complement of 11 men. The Emma, he says, was delayed and thrown widely south of her course by the great storm of March 1st, and on March 22nd, in the southern latitude, 49 degrees and 50 minutes, with the western longitude of 128 degrees and 34 minutes, encountered the alert, and by a queer and evil-looking crew of islanders. Being ordered preemptorily to turn back, Captain Collins refused, whereupon the strange crew began to fire savagely and without warning upon the schooner, with peculiarly heavy battery of brass cannon forming the part of the yacht's equipment. The Emma's men showed fight, says the survivor, and though the schooner began to sink from the shots beneath the waterline, they managed to heave alongside their enemy and board her, grappling with the savage crew on the yacht's deck and being forced to kill them all the number being slightly superior because of their particularly abhorrent and desperate though rather clumsy mode of fighting. Three of the Emma's men, including Captain Collins and the first mate Green, were killed, and the remaining eight under second mate Johansson proceeded to navigate the captured yacht, going ahead in their original direction to see if any reason for their ordering back had existed. The next day, it appears they raised and landed on a small island, although none is known to exist in that part of the ocean, and six of the men somehow died ashore, though Johansson is queerly resentant about this part of his story, and speaks only of their falling into a rock chasm. Later, it seems, he and one companion boarded the lot and tried to manage her, but were beaten about by the storm of April 2nd.
from that time till his rescue on the twelfth the man remembers little and he does not even recall when william breeden his companion died breeden's death reveals no apparent cause and was probably due to excitement or exposure Cable advisers from the Dundurn report that the alert was well known there as an island trader and bore an evil reputation along the waterfront. It was owned by a curious group of folk whose frequent meetings and night trips into the woods attracted no little curiosity, and it had set sail in great haste just after the storm and earth tremors of March 1st. Our Auckland correspondent gives the Emma and her crew an excellent reputation, and Johansson is described as a sober and worthy man. The Admiralty will institute an inquiry on the whole matter beginning tomorrow, at which every effort will be made to induce Johansson to speak more freely than he has done hitherto. This was all, together with a picture of the Hellas image, but what a train of ideas it started in my mind. Here were new treasuries of data on the Cthulhu cult, and evidence that it had strange interests at sea as well as on land. What had prompted the crew to order the Emma back as they sailed about with their hideous idol? What was the unknown island on which six of the Emma's crew had died, and about which the mate Johansson was so secretive? What had the Vice Admiralty's investigation brought out, and what was known about the noxious cult in Dedun? And most marvellous of all, what deep and more natural linkage of dates was this gave the Maglin and now undeniable significance to various turns of events so carefully noted by my uncle. March 1st, our February 28th, according to the international dateline, the earthquake and storm had come. From Dundon, the alert and her noisome crew had darted eagerly forth as if imperiously summoned, and on the other side of the earth, poets and artists had began to dream of a strange, dank, cyclopean city, which our young sculptor had moulded in his sleep from the form of the dreaded Cthulhu. March 23rd, the crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. On that date, the dreams of sensitive men assumed the heightened vividness and darkness with dread of giant mon monsters in Maglin pursuit. Whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculpture had lapsed suddenly into delirium. And what of this storm on April 2nd, the date on which all the dreams and the dank city ceased and Wilcock emerged unharmed from his bondage of a strained fever? What of all this? and of those hints of old Castro about the sunken, star-born old ones and their coming reign, their faithful cult and their mastery of dreams. I was tottering on the brink of cosmic horrors beyond a man's power to bear? If so, they must be horrors of the mind alone, for in some way the 2nd of April had put a stop to whatever monstrous menace had begun siege of mankind's soul. That evening, after a day of hurried cabling and arranging, I bade my host adieu and took a train for San Francisco. In less than a month, I was in Judin, where, however, I found that little was known of the strange cult members who had lingered in the old sea taverns. Waterfront scum was far too common for special mention, though there was vague talk about one inland trip these mongrels had made, during which faint drumming and red flame were noticed on the distant hills. In Auckland, I learned that Johansson had returned with yellow hair turned white after 
perfunctory and inclusive questioning in Sydney, and had thereafter sold his cottage in West Street and sailed with his wife to his old home in Oslo. Of his stirring experience, he would tell his friends no more than he had told the Admiralty officials, and all they could do was give me his Oslo address. After that, I went to Sydney and talked profitlessly with seamen and members of the Vice Admiralty Court. I saw the alert now stalled, sold and in commercial use at Circular Quay in Sydney Cove, but gained nothing from its non-committal bulk. The crouching image with its cuttlefish head and dragon body and scaly wings and the hieroglyph pedestal was preserved in the museum at Hyde Park, and I studied it long and well, finding the thing of baefully exquisite workmanship with the same utter mystery, terrible antiquity, and unearthly strangeness of material which I had noted in Lagrassi's smaller special specimen. Geologists, the curator told me, had found it a monstrous puzzle, for they vowed that the world held no rock like it. Then I thought with a shudder of what old Castro had told Lagrassi about the primal great ones. They had come from the stars, and they had brought their images with them. Shaken with such a mental revolution as I had never known before, I now resolved to visit mate Johansson in Oslo. Sailing for London, I re-embarked at once again for the Norwegian capital, and one autumn day landed at the trim wharves in the shadows of Eegsberg. Johansson's address, I discovered, lay in the old town of King Harald Hadranda which kept alive the name of Oslo during the, all the centuries that the greater city masqueraded as Christiana. I made a brief trip by taxicab and knocked with a palpitant heart on the door of a neat and ancient building with a plastered front. A sad-faced woman in black answered my summons and I was stung with disappointment when she told me in halting English that Gustav Johansson was no more. He had not long survived his return said his wife, for the doings at sea in 1925 had broken him. He had told her no more than he had told the public, but had left a long manuscript of technical matters, as he said, written in English evidently in order to safeguard her from the peril of casual perusal. During a walk through the narrow lane near Gothenburg Dock, a bundle of papers falling from an attic window had knocked him down. Two sailors at once helped him to his feet, but before the ambulance could arrive, he was dead. Physicians found no adequate cause for the end and laid it to heart trouble and a weakened constitution. I now felt gnawing at my vitals that dark terror, which will never leave me till I too am at rest, accidentally or otherwise. Persuading the widow that my connection with her husband's technical matters was sufficient to entitle me to his manuscript, I bore the document away and began to read it on the London boat. It was a simple, rambling thing, a naive soldier's effort at a post-facto diary, and strove to recall day by day that last awful voyage. I cannot attempt to transcribe it verbatim in all its cloudiness and redundance, but I will tell it's just enough to show why the sound of water against the vessel's side became so unendurable to me that I stuffed my ears with cotton. Johansson, thank God, did not know quite all, even though he saw the city and the thing. But I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and in space, 
and of those unhallowed blasphemers from elder stars which dream beneath the sea known and favored by a nightmare cult ready and eager to loose them on the world whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous sown city again to air and sun johansen's voyage had begun just as he had told it to the vice admiralty the emma in ballast had cleared auckland on february 20th and had felt the full force of that earthquake-borne tempest which must have heaved up from the sea bottom the horrors that filled men's dreams once more under control the ship was making good progress when held up by the alert on march 22nd and i could feel the mate's regret as he wrote of her bombardment and sinking of the swathry cult fiends on the alert he speaks with significant horror there was some peculiarly abominable quality about them which made their destruction seem almost a duty and johansen shows ingenious wonder at the charge of ruthlessness brought against his party during the proceedings of the court inquiry then driven ahead by curiosity and their captured yacht under johansen's command the men sight a great stone pillar sticking out of the sea in south latitude 47 degrees 9 minutes west longitude 126 degrees 43 minutes come upon a coastline of mingled mud ooze and weedy cyclopean masonry which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of earth's supreme terror the nightmare corpse city of rael that was built in measureless eons behind history by that vast loathsome shape that seeps down from the dark stars there lay great cthulhu and his hordes hidden in green slimy vaults and sending out last at last after cycles incalculable the thoughts that spread fear to the dreams of the sensitive and call imperiously to the faithful to come on a pilgrimage of liberation and restoration all this Johannesson did not expect, but God knows he soon saw enough. I suppose that only a single mountain top, the hideous monolith crowned citadel, whereon great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. When I think of the extent of all that may be brooding down there, I almost wish to kill myself forthwith. Johansen and his men were awed by the cosmic majesty of this dripping Babylon of elder demons, and must have guessed without guidance that it was nothing of this or of any sane planet, or at the unbelievable size of the greenish stone blocks, at the dizzying height of the great cavern monolith, and the stupidifying identity of the colossal statues and bas-reliefs with the queer image found in the shrine on the alert, is pognatically visible in every line of the mate's frightened description without knowing what futurism is like johannesson achieved something very close to it when he spoke of the city for instead of describing any definitive structure or building he dwells only on broad impressions of vast angles and stone surfaces surfaces too great to belong to anything right or proper for this earth and imperious with horrible images and hieroglyphs I mention his talk about angles because it suggests something Wilcox had told me of his awful dreams. He had said the geometry of the dream place he saw was abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsomely redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from ours. Now an unlettered seaman felt the same thing whilst gazing at the terrible reality. Johansen and his men landed at a sloping mud bank on this monstrous Acropolis and clambered slipperily 
over the tight and oozy blocks which could have been no mortal staircase. The very sun of heaven seemed distorted when viewed through polarizing miasma welling out of this sea-soaked perversion, and twisted menace and suspense lurked leeringly in those crazily elusive angles of cavern rock where a second glance showed concavity after the first showed convexity. Something very like fright had come over all the explorers before anything more definite than rock and ooze and weed were seen. Each would have fled had he not feared the scorn of the others, and it was only half-heartedly that they searched, vainly, as it proved, for some portable souvenir to bear away. It was Rodriguez, the Portuguese, who climbed up the foot of the monolith and shouted of what he had found. The rest followed him and looked curiously into the immense carved door with the now familiar squid dragon bas-relief. It was, Johansson said, like a great barn door, and they all felt it was a door because of the ornate lintel threshold and jams around it, though they could not decide whether it lay flat like a trapdoor or slantwise like an outdoor cellar door. As Wilcox would have said, the geometry of the place was all wrong. One could not be sure that the sea and the ground were horizontal, therefore the relative position of everything seemed phasmatically variable. Bryden pushed at the stone in several places without result, then Donovan felt over it delicately around the edges, pressing each point separately as he went. He climbed intimidably along the grotesque stone moulding, that is, one would call it climbing, if the thing was not, after all, horizontal. And the men wondered how any door in the universe could be so vast. Then, very softly and slowly, the acre-great panel began to give inward at the top, and they saw that it was balanced. Donovan slid, or somehow propelled himself down along the jam, and rejoined his fellows, and everyone watched in queer recession of the monstrosity cavern portal. In this fantasy of prismatic distortion, it moved anomalously in a diagonal way, so that all the rules of matter and perspective seemed upset. The aperture was black, with a darkness almost material. That terrorousness was indeed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed and actually burst forth like smoke from its eon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away in the shrunken, gibbous sky on flapping membranous wings. The odour arising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and at length the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard nasty slopping sounds down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was still listening when it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poison city of madness. Oyo Hansen's handwriting almost gave out when he wrote of this. Of the six men who never reached the ship, he thinks two perished of pure fright in that accursed instant. instant. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorable lunacy, such as eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order.
a mountain walked or stumbled god what wonder that across the earth a great architect went mad and poor wilcox raved with a fever in that telepathic instant the thing of idols the green sickly spawn of stars had awakened to claim his own the stars were right again and what age-old cult had failed to do by design a band of innocent sailors had done by accident after vigilations of years the great cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight the three men were swept up by the flabby claws before anybody turned god rest them if there be any rest in the universe they were donovan guerra and angstrom parker slipped as the other three were plunging friend frenziedly over the endless vistas of green crushed rock to the boat and johansen swears he was swallowed up by an angle of masonry which shouldn't have been there an angle which was acute but behaved as if it was obtuse so only by bryden and johansen reached the boat and pulled desperately for the alert as the mountainous monstrosity flopped down in the slimy slums and hesitated floundering at the edge of the water steam had not been suffered to go down entirely despite the departure of all hands for the shore it was the work of only a few moments of feverish rapping up rushing up and down between wheels and engines to get the alert underway slowly amidst the distorted horrors of that indescribable scene she began to churn the lethal waters whilst on the masonry of that charnel shore that was not of earth the titan thing from the stars slavered and gibbered like polypheme cursing the fleeting ship of adeus then bolder than storied cyclops the great cthulhu slid greasily into the water and began to pursue the vast wave rising strokes of cosmic potency breeden looked back and went mad laughing shrilly as he kept on laughing at intervals till death found him one night in the cabin whilst johansen was wandering deliriously but johansen had not given out yet knowing that the thing could surely overtake the alert until the steam was fully up he resolved on a desperate chance and setting the engine for full speed ran like lightning on the deck and reserved the wheel there was a mighty eddying and foaming in the noisome brine and the steam mounted higher and higher the brave norwegian drove his vessel head on against the pursuing jelly which rose above the unclean froth like the stern of a demon galleon the awful squid head with writhing feelers came up near the bowsprit of the yacht but johansen drove on relentlessly there was a bursting of an exploding bladder a slushy nastiness of cloven sunfish a stench of a thousand open graves and a sound that a chronicler would not put on paper for an instant the ship was befouled by an acerid blinding green cloud and then there was only a venomous seething astern where god in heaven the scattered placidity of the nameless sky spawn was nebulously recombing in its hateful original form while its distance widened every second as the alert gained impetus from its mounting steam that was all after that johansen only brooded over the idol in the cabin and attended to a few matters of food for himself and the laughing maniac by his side he did not try to navigate after the first bold flight for the reaction had taken something out of his soul 
Then came the storm of April 2nd and the gathering of cloud about his consciousness. There is a sense of spectral whirring through the gulf liquids of affinity, dizzying rides, the reeling universes on a comet's tail, and of hysterical plunges from the pit to the moon and from the moon and back again to the pit, all livened by a catchinating chorus of the distorted, hilarious elder gods and the green, bat-winged, mopping imps of Tartarus. Out of that dream came rescue, the vigilant, the vice-admiralty court, the streets of Duden, and the long voyage back home to the old house by Egiberg. He could not tell. They would think he was mad. He would write of what he knew before death came, but his wife must not guess. Death would be a boon if only it could blot out memories. That was the document I read, and now I have placed it in the tin box beside the bas-relief and the papers of Professor Angel. With it, shall go this record of mine, this test of my own sanity, wherein piece together that I which hope may never be pieced together again. I have looked upon all the universes that hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterwards be poison to me. But I do not think my life will be long. As my uncle went, as poor Johansson went, I shall go. I know too much. And the cult still lives. Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose, again in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. His accursed city is sunken once more, for the vigilant sailed over the spot after the April storm. But his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle-capped monoliths in lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or else the world would now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsome waits and dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not think and cannot think. Let me pray that, if I do not survive this manuscript, my executives may put caution before audacity and see that this meets no other eyes. That concludes our tale for this week, my friend. Please return next week and we will continue with another short story by H.P. Lovecraft. If you wish to rest some more, please find a space that suits you. Whether you curl up by the fire, partake in some food and beverages in our kitchen, take a nap in one of our many rooms, or take a stroll around the garden, please know you are always welcome at Sniper's Rest, my friend. If you are continuing your journey, the multiverse is teeming with possibilities today. To the north, how's your physics? Not good? Yeah. It's just a series of puzzles, right? We'll work together. It'll be easy. I think. To the west, welcome to the expressive land of gothic fables and fairy tales. Ever wanted to be a witch? Well, now's your chance. Explore the wild and wondrous lands around you. 
and pick and choose moral or immoral justice for the creatures around you. How will they learn if you don't teach them? To the east, sick of the nightmares that plague your sleeping times, you set out on a crazy adventure to find out why. The fate of the world hangs in the balance and you are... Well, you're a hero. Good luck. And if you are making your own way out there, good luck, my friend, wherever you end up. Wherever you come from and wherever you're going, thank you for spending some time here with us at Sniper's Rest. Remember to take care of yourself, be kind to others, hydrate, take a moment to look out into the world and marvel at how incredible it all is. How incredible you are, friend. Until next time, please take care on your way.